with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. What is it that makes for a good church? What is the ideal to which we are striving? What do we want God to do in our midst? There are many, many good answers to those questions. But because I'm in the book of Genesis and in Genesis 37, I'm going to define it by two words. Submission and love. That's what we want to have God do in our midst. We think of what, how to answer the question of whether this is a good church. It is that a good church submits to the Lord Jesus Christ. Mediated to us through the Bible, through sound doctrine, through good leadership. But a bad church is one that refuses to submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and insists on doing your own independent will. A good church is one that is full of love and unity and compassion between one another. A bad church is one that is full of division and strife and jealousy and hatred. Now the truth of the matter is that there are no perfect churches and that every congregation is a mixture of the two. In some sense, even Christians want to be their own ruler. We all, to some degree from our old nature, resist God's rule over us. And even if we're willing to admit it, uh, not often willing to admit it, we want to control and rule over those around us. It is also true that Christians struggle to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. Mutual animosity can be the norm even within congregations and past hurts afflicted upon one another sometimes seem insurmountable. Well, the story of Joseph Joseph has much to teach us about submission and love. Now, I'm not going to read the entire text together. I'm going to read a portion and go back and forth on my comments just so you will be stay focused on each individual section. So reading from Genesis 37, verse 1, in the beginning of verse 2, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Now what you're going to see here is that Jacob is living now, finally, in the promised land. He's living there with his family. And the rest of the book of Genesis, this, this statement in Genesis uh, 37, verse 2, These are the generations of Jacob. This is all about the family of Jacob. That's what the rest of Genesis is all about, Jacob's family. I'm going to call it the saga of Joseph because Joseph is the main character. But Genesis has its own title, and that is the generations of Jacob. And I'm assuming that you'll understand that the in the family of Jacob are the beginnings. Everything in Genesis is about the beginnings are the beginnings of God's church, his people. So as you see interactions among the family, it's going to relate to our interactions in God's family, the church. 
We know that Jacob's family life has not been ideal already. If you've been following along, it's not been great. But in chapter 37, strife in the family hits an all-time low. It is not good. Um, What I want you to also see before we delve into this too much, the family strife, the struggle between the brothers, is directly related to God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. So let me read that to you. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, God says, I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Focus on that. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here's the final. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And the question we need to ask as we go through Genesis 37, how in the world can Jacob's family be a blessing to all the other families of the earth when everyone in the family hates each other? That's it, that's it, that's the connection. God's like, man, I want to make my people a blessing to the world, and here they are fighting with each other, hating each other. So for Israel to become a blessing to all the families of the earth, there must be true love existing between the family members. Now, I said in in the beginning that, that love and submission are the two words. As we're going to see in this passage, hatred of among the brothers is related to their desire to rule. Lack of humble submission leads to jealousy, and jealousy leads to hate. So for Israel to become a blessing, she must willingly... This is very important. It's hard to see when you go through this. For Israel to become a blessing, she must willingly submit to God's appointed ruler. In today's story, God's appointed ruler is Joseph. It didn't have to be Joseph. God could have chose any number of the other kids. But God chose Joseph not because he was better, wasn't the best looking, whatever. That wasn't it. We learn this already from when God chose Jacob over Esau, right? Had nothing to do with them. But given the fact that God has chosen Joseph, it is the duty of the other brothers to submit to God's appointed ruler. And only as the brothers are humbled will they actually submit to God's rule. And it's not going to be today, guys. It's, It's way down the road, okay? Down in Egypt when they start learning submission, okay? Not here, but that's what's going on. I would make a a declarative statement. You want to write things down. There is no true love without humble submission. There is no true love without humble submission. You see, pride is the enemy of love. And submission alone deals a death blow to pride. Now, how do I know this in the text? Because God intentionally takes one of the brothers 
and lifts him above the other brothers so that those brothers would have to deal with their pride and their jealousy. God didn't have to do that. He said, Knights of the Round Table, we're all equal. No brother above another brother. Everybody's equal. He could have done that. That's not the way God does it. The relationships between the brothers is central to Genesis 37. We know this 21 times brother or brothers is used in this one chapter. And we know the brother's hatred for Joseph is central to the story. You know that. All right, let's keep reading. Genesis 37, second half of 2 through verse 4. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now, these verses are preparatory. They set the stage. What they're doing are giving very legitimate human reasons why there should not be love and fellowship among them. Right? Humanly speaking, no one likes a tattletale. Is that right? Joseph is the younger brother, and he tattles on his older brothers. Now, I grew up a younger brother. And the unwritten code among brothers is that you do not tattle on one another. This is not really an issue of whether it's morally right or wrong. It has nothing to do with that. It's a matter of retribution. You tattle on your older brother and you will suffer the consequences of that. It didn't take me long to learn this. Uh, I learned it very early. But once I learned it, I can only remember one occasion where I tattled on my brother. I had plenty of reasons to tattle on my brother. He probably had a bunch to tattle on me too, but I can only remember one occasion. I talked to him about this just recently so I kind of get my facts straight and stuff. Um, my brother and a friend of his buy a very large container of gunpowder. Uh, supposedly the reason was to make your own shells for shotguns. But being the younger brother, I knew that the real reason was they wanted to make a bomb and make the largest explosion that they could possibly make. Now, I knew that they didn't want to hurt anybody or blow up anything important, but, but I also knew that these kind of things can get out of hand. And so I decided, you know, I'm going to have to break the rule, whatever the consequences. I don't want my brother to blow off a hand or something. And so I told them and tattled on them, and they couldn't make the bomb. And I'm sure they were mad at me. My brother doesn't even remember what he did to me. You know, I don't, I don't know. Um, maybe I didn't get in that much trouble. They didn't get in that much trouble either. But the bomb didn't get built, and we're both here today. So that's good. So younger brothers are not supposed to tattle on their older brothers unless it is to save them from serious harm. That's my rule that I have. There's an exception to these rules, but that's it. Now, Joseph has not learned this lesson. He feels the need to point out the faults of his brothers to dad. Naturally, the brothers do not have any affection. You just don't like it when somebody tattles on you. 
Add to the fact that, jo- that Jacob has also not learned a, a cardinal rule among family members, a lesson of parenting. You're not supposed to play favorites. Okay? Now, Jacob not only plays favorites with Joseph, he makes his favoritism formal. He gives him a coat. And we always love to say the coat of many colors. But this is a formal symbol that he is management over his brothers. That's what's going on. And I have to go pause a little bit here and just go down a little side trail. Just because sometimes, this is something that's been confusing to me over the years and I don't have it all worked out. As a father, I think favoritism is awful. I would never want one of my kids to think that I love them more than another child, unless it's Ginny. Of course, all my kids know that I love Ginny the most. But other than that, uh, you don't want to play favorites. You just don't want to do that. It's an awful thing. And I believe that that's a biblical principle in the church. If you go to the book of James, if somebody walks in your church, you're not supposed to play favorites. You're just not supposed to do that. You don't play favorites for the wealthy person. You don't play favorites for the poor person. Nothing. You're not supposed to play favorites. So I think that's a a very good principle throughout all of Scripture. But if you've been following along in the book of Genesis and the Scripture as a whole, it's hard to not come to the conclusion that God played a favorite when he chose Jacob. I just still get confused about this. I don't know how those two work together. Uh... I just bring it up because it's easy for us to blame, blame Jacob for all the, you know, his problems uh, of favoring Joseph. He had just, if he had just not played favorites, everything would have been fine. I, I don't think that's the issue. <clears throat> now, this preparation. Here's, here's what I'm gaining from these verses. Whenever we have animosity towards another brother or sister in Christ, we always have good reasons for it, don't we? They did such and such. They are such and such a way, right? We have good reason. I am justified for not loving my brother or sister in Christ. We have good reasons. In fact, if I were to just sit down in a counseling, I counsel a lot of people, you know, here comes one of the brothers to me, and he says, look at this, look at this, Joseph did this, and Jacob did that, I'd probably side with one of the brothers. Be like, man, that's pretty bad, right? Now, we would even counsel, you know, we might need to go and talk to Jacob and set him straight, and we might need to get Joseph straight. And if we can't get them straight, then we're justified in getting out of here. Now, true enough, as this story unfolds, it won't unf- you won't hear this today, but as it works out, God does deal with Jacob, and he does deal with Joseph, and he's dealing with the sins of their hearts. But we also need to see that Jacob and Joseph are not the real problem in the hearts of the brothers. You see, the faults of Jacob and Joseph are an excuse that the brothers must deal with because it's really an attitude in their own hearts that's going on, okay? So let's see how God has to, how he has to work this out. Verses 5 to 11. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told his, it to his brothers, they hated him even more. 
He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us, or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now, if you're going to understand this passage correctly, you have to understand that God is the source of the dream. Now, God doesn't directly speak to us in dreams today. Since the completion of the New Testament, we look to God to speak to us through the Bible. But in Joseph's day, God made use of dreams to communicate his will. And he has a a purpose in mind when he does this. God wants Jacob and the other brothers to hear his voice in the dream. And God is also very purposeful in giving the dream to Joseph. God is himself elevating Joseph over his brothers, and even over Jacob. If you understand this, you also understand that God expects Joseph to tell the dream, the contents of it. God doesn't give you the dream, so you just keep it to yourself. He's supposed to do this. God knows that when Joseph does, the, the brothers will not take it well. It is almost as if God himself is feeding the animosity that's already brewing. Makes it harder. I do think there's a little bit of connection between God going to Rebecca and telling her that Jacob is going to be uh, ruling over Esau. Only here in in the Jacob story, remember, Isaac loved Esau. Like he loved the one... That was not the one God chose. But in this situation, God chooses Joseph to rule, and that's the one that dad favored. And so it's like, man, you're just feeding into all this animosity, and you wonder why God is doing this. You also need to understand that the brothers, rather than submitting to God's voice, only see Joseph's uh, attitude. And he does have a bad attitude. They do not recognize that God is at work in this situation. Now, Joseph's second dream includes dad. And Jacob's response is both similar and different to the brothers. Jacob, I mean, yeah, Jacob rebukes Joseph, but at the same time, he loves Joseph. And so what does he do? The text says that he he kept the saying in his mind. 
he starts reflecting on this. Why would God give my son this dream? Doesn't make any sense to me. And that language reminds us of all the times in the New Testament when God would do crazy stuff through Jesus and and Mary would treasure these things up in her heart. Pondering it, thinking about it. Like, this doesn't make sense to me, but it's God doing this. I, I don't know what to do. And so that's where Jacob is, in contrast to the brothers. The brothers are just full of jealousy. They're ready to take them out. Jacob is actually pondering all of this. And I would just tell you today that the Christian life and the study of Scripture requires reflection and pondering. If you think you can just sit down in two minutes, read a little bit of Scripture, go on and do with your life, and you think you're going to get what God wants to tell you through the Scriptures, you've got another thing coming. You need to reflect you need to pause. You need to think on, meditate on Scripture. There's not a prescription for how much time that will take, but everyone needs to know that that's a part of the Christian life. And it's not accidental that this world wants to fill your mind with things every moment so that you never have time to ponder and reflect. <clears throat> now, throughout Israel's history, God is always bringing human people through which he wants his people to submit. You can think of Moses. You can think of the prophets, the priests, and the kings in the Old Testament. They're all human people that God needs to, that he wants his people to submit to. God's appointed leaders. But I'm going to jump immediately to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is God's appointed ruler through whom you must submit if you are going to learn what it means to love. Okay. Um, it is definitively this is another one of those statements it is by submission to God's appointed ruler that we begin to love one another think about the Lord Jesus Christ in the New Testament 1 John 3 23 John is speaking about Christ's commandment. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he loved us. See, the, you're going to believe and submit to Jesus, and you're going to submit to his command to love one another. You see how that works? Jesus command, commands us to love our brothers and sisters in the same way that he has loved us, because Jesus is our elder brother. Just like Joseph is a brother, and he becomes the one that God appoints, Jesus is our brother, like us in every way. John 13, 34 and 35, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You understand how important our love for one another is really us saying to Jesus, I will submit to you and obey your commandments. Because if you didn't have the commandment, you would only love when you feel like loving. And I would also argue that only, only as you experience, and I don't, I, I hate to use that word because you're, you're accepting it by faith, But only as you are convinced 
and, and assured of God's love for you, will that spur you to be able to extend the same kind of love to others? Okay. Um, there are a lot of parallels between Joseph and Jesus in our day. You're going to see that as we go through this. It is, it is at the same time, while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. It was while his own people were mocking him and spitting on him that Jesus goes to the cross. You can see how that works out, right? There's a, as, as Joseph, in his story, is hated by his brothers, and then later on in the story he will love his brothers, there's a parallel with Christ in that. <clears throat> Another thing I really want you to see in this, in this story before we just kind of quickly go through the rest of the passage, and that is this. God knows that if the church is going to be a blessing to the rest of the families of the earth, they have to love one another. But God's not sitting up there in heaven going, man, I wish they would do it. I wish they would do it. I wish they would do it. I, I want them to do it, but I can't make it happen. If you understand the bigger picture of the story of Joseph, God is the one who's working. He's working out arrogance in Joseph. He's working out uh, jealousy among the brothers. He, he is the one doing this. And so if we as a church are going to be who we want to be and who God wants us to be, it's only going to be as we recognize that God is doing the work. It's, he's, he's bigger than your disobedience. You're going to see that in this passage. Everything in this passage is about God's sovereign hand to do in his family what they would never do for themselves. Left to ourselves, we just keep hating one another. It's only as God's working, and you're going to see his hand at work through this whole story. Beginning in verse 12 through 14. Now his brothers went to pasture their flo- father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. Now, Jacob has to know that, his brother, that Joseph's brothers hate him, and yet he still sends them. And Shechem is like 50 miles away, so he's sending him way away. We should all be leery of Shechem, right? Because, I mean, this is where Dinah was defiled, and this is where they, you know, there's not a lot of good friends in the Shechem region. And so here's Jacob, like, is he an idiot? Is he stupid? He sends his brother to this region where he knows he's going to be in danger. He's sending him into the firestorm. But under God's hand of providence, Joseph is going right where God wants him. 15 to 17, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and a man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers. He said, tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man says, oh, they've they've gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. Now, this little verses make no sense unless you're realizing that it's all about God's sovereign hand orchestrating everything. Humanly speaking, Would you expect to find a helpful man in Shechem? No. It would be like a Russian soldier 
walking into a Ukrainian village and asking for directions. It's just not going to happen. And yet under God's hand of providence, it's exactly what happens. And what is more, you walk into this village and you, you meet one man, the first man you meet, and he just happens to have had a conversation with the brothers. And he knows exactly where they are. All right, I'm glad that uh, um, Art's here. My Gastonia boy, this is my illustration for you, Art. Imagine trying to meet someone in Gastonia. You don't have cell phones. You just are looking for them down there. And so you travel down the Gastonia, and you don't find the people you're looking for, but the very first person you come across says, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I, know, I not only know, I saw them, but I actually talked to them, and they told me where they're going. It's like, no, they're not here in Gastonia anymore. They're on 4th Street in Charlotte. And you think about the, the, the craziness that the first guy he comes up to, who should be his enemy, actually tells him exactly where the brothers are. We are to see God's hand of providence in this. God wants Joseph there. 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. Now, is it, is it coincidence that they see Joseph before Joseph sees them? That's, that's strange in the story, right? Uh, I think again. Uh, they need time to craft their evil plans. Um, God actually intends for the brothers to make their schemes. See, because we need to see what is in their hearts. We need to see just how evil and jealous these brothers really are and what God must do to get that switched around, changing them. Who overcomes their jealousy? Their own goodness? Their own ability to change their own hearts? No. God is the one at work in this story. At the same time, God can't let them actually fulfill their desire. He can't let them actually kill Joseph. So he's also got to work that way, right? So we get Reuben initially. When Reuben heard it, he, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Cast him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. Now what you're to see with Reuben here is not that he's the good guy. He is good and that he doesn't want him to die. But, but really I think what's going on with Reuben is he thinks that if he rescues Joseph, he will again be elevated in the eyes of Jacob. And he wants to gain that favor. He wants to be the firstborn again. And what we're also to see in this story is, although he has these motivations, he's got his own scheming, he's powerless to make them happen. 23 to 25. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and cast him into a pit, the pit was empty. There was no water in it. 
And they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Now there's all kinds of parallels to Christ. Him being stripped of his robe, very similar to Christ being stripped of his robe. The fact that they sat down and ate a meal while they're planning to kill him also it's, it's appalling, but it's also providential. You see, we get to see how just evil and corrupt these brothers are, and at the same time, God's hand uses their eating the meal to give them enough time for these traitors to come by. <clears throat> Again, God's hand of providence, they just happen to come by Dothan at this time, and they just happen to be going to Egypt. Can you see the connection with Jesus eventually going down to Egypt and being brought back out of Egypt? All this begins right here. These parallels are very close to one another. But just providing the caravan is not enough. The brothers need to see that the caravan actually gives them an opportunity, and that's exactly what Judah presents. Verse 26, Judah says to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Now, it is, number one, ironic that it's the Ishmaelites that saved Joseph. Um, but it's also strange that the brothers are willing to adopt Judah's plan. Why? They don't want to be responsible for his death, even though in their hearts they want to kill him. Can we say the Pharisees, not wanting to actually become unclean by doing the dirty work and killing Jesus themselves, instead they want Pilate to do their dirty work for them? Judah's plan is in some ways better than Reuben's and in some ways worse. It's worse in that his motivation is not really to save Joseph, but it's actually better because he stands up to the brothers, where Reuben just does his planning secretly. The exchange happens. Then the Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy's gone, uh, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood, and sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned his son for many days. Jacob won the birthright through his own deception. Now in God's providence, Jacob is deceived by his sons into believing that his beloved son has been killed by a wild animal. And I don't see that as God sticking it to Jacob. I see that as God actually working into Jacob. He's loving Joseph, and God wants Jacob to put all of his love upon him. And I think that's what God's doing in Jacob's heart during this time. God intends to bless Jacob. He doesn't hate Jacob. And yet he takes him through this experience. 
You guys should think about that in your own lives. Just because you're going through an incredibly hard circumstance, season in your life, doesn't mean that God hates you, but he is using it to help you fix your eyes upon him. Verse 35, all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Now the attempt of comfort by the brothers is sheer hypocrisy. They're the, they're the wild animals. They're the ones that killed his son and they're trying to give him comfort. Now, think about this statement. If the love within the family were dependent on these brothers, would we have any hope? If the love within the church is dependent upon you, would we have any hope? It's God alone doing it. That's why we need to see his hand of providence working. He is larger. He is the one that's bringing this about. Verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, of officer of Pharaoh the captain of the guard. This is the closing of Act 1. You can imagine the scenes, you know, Act 1. How will God's people ever become a blessing when this is the way they act towards one another? It almost seems like the promise will never come about. And yet God says, my arm is strong enough to bring it about. I can take people who hate one another, and I can bring them to love one another. And that's exactly what he's going to do with Joseph and his brothers. Lessons. Five quick ones. Submission to Christ and love of our brothers and sisters are connected. If you don't believe that Jesus has commanded you to love your brothers and sisters, you won't do it. And it is through humbling yourself and reaching out to love someone that you really don't really get along with that your obedience to Christ is most manifest. Now, the church's ability to be a blessing to all the families of the earth rests in her learning brotherly love within her ranks. I get it. I know that a lot of the liberal churches don't have any concern for God's holiness and his justice and what's right and wrong, and I get all that, but it doesn't negate how important it is that you learn to love each other. Thirdly, As we learn to submit to Jesus Christ, we will increasingly obey his command to love one another. That's the focus. I want to know how to obey Jesus, and then he is going to help me learn to love my brothers and sisters in Christ. Last two points are are more to the point of God's sovereign. Do not think that one day you'll just say, Jesus, help me to love my enemy, and I'll just be able to do it. It doesn't work that way. There's process, there's difficulty, there's challenge. And I believe God wants you to feel the inability. I I think he wants you to know that you can't love someone of your own just will and determination. You see, we are Christians. And that means that we need Christ because we don't love. And we must go to him. 
Because he loved you when you didn't love him. And you have to first experience his love in your heart if you're ever going to be able to reach out and love other people with that same kind of love. Lastly, maybe you've been trying to love someone for years and you still don't feel like you're making any progress. Just go back to the story of Joseph. Take the long haul. God is going to do it. And one day, when we see Jesus face to face, we will love every one of our brothers and sisters perfectly. You realize that? Whatever you thought was so insurmountable on this earth, if they're in heaven and you're in heaven, you will love each other then. That's the truth of the matter. Because God is not going to have his church with squabblings in it. It seems insurmountable, but go to the book of of Genesis and see how God knows how to work out jealousy and lack of submission from it. He knows how to do it. He's been doing it for years, and he will do it in us as well. Now, I say all this. I'll end with this. I think there's a sweet spirit in our church. I really don't think we're struggling with a lot of dissension and, and disunity right now, but it's still... This is just the passage I came to, but I know that that festers in all of us, and we need the Lord Jesus Christ to help us. Amen.